And my thought that, that's uh, ringing through my head right now is, is this just the best or not? I mean, um, I think that's the sign that a community is really getting to the heart of God. Not only does God draw us in, but the more you get brought into the heart of God, the more you also feel this spinning out force that spins us out into the world. And to week after week hear people stand up here who are getting spun out into the world is just an awesome thing. So I've been sick all week. And every day I wake up, like I just, I'm going to feel better today. I'm going to feel better today. And I woke up this morning just like, I'm going to feel better today. And I don't, (laughs) I don't feel better. I might go into a little coughing uh, spurt, but uh, we're going to just plow through this, okay? So we're going to finish our series on Joseph this morning. And if you were here last time, just by way of review, you remember it was this, this big encounter between Joseph and his brothers, namely Judah. After all those years, after those brothers had hurt him and wounded him and sold him as a slave, they come together. And we looked at this from Judah's side because Judah rises up and gives us one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of repentance. And he leads his brothers in this, in this repentance where he falls face down in humility. He has the courage to admit his sin. He shows great remorse for what he, he has done. And more than that, he is a changed person. He changes. And so this week, though, we're going to look at this thing from Joseph's side. And I don't have time to read all the texts that we looked at last week. But we looked at Genesis 42 through 44. I just, to whet our appetite, want to start at the end of Genesis 44. But our main verses will be in Genesis 50. So if you have a Bible like mine, you can turn to page 35. And I'm just going to read the end of Judah's speech to Joseph. This great confrontation. Verse 33. The words of Judah. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. When Joseph heard this, he could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, leave. Everyone get out of here. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And all of Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer them, him because they were terrified in his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph. It's awesome. And now switch, turn over to uh, Genesis 50. 
This is, by the way, 17 years later from that event. Joseph, Jacob, the whole family is now living in Egypt. In fact, Jacob, the father, has just passed away. Picking up at verse 15 of, of Genesis 50. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. By the way, I don't think there were any father's instructions here. I think this is, you know, them making that up. But this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. You know what? You can be seated now. (laughs) Because I know you're standing in your hearts, right? All right. um, If Judah, as we looked at last time, is the model of repentance, then Joseph is the model of forgiveness. And this is the reason why Joseph is great, biblically speaking. It's not because of his position. It's not because he's been exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. But Joseph's greatness is in his ability to forgive. In fact, this act is not only a life changer for him, but it's a world changer. Because I think one of the things that we learn in Genesis, when you're reading through this book, that we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, revenge and repaying evil for evil reigns supreme. I mean, you get to this guy named Lamech very early in, in chapter 4 of Genesis. And, and Lamech writes this little poem where he prides himself on the fact that you hurt me, I hurt you. You kill or touch anything of mine and I kill you. In fact, I take revenge, says Lamech, not just seven times, but 70 times seven on anything that you do to me. And see, as you read Genesis, you realize that this is even brother to brother. Cain and Abel, brother kills brother. Come to Isaac and Ishmael, brothers who separate and remain unreconciled. In fact, they're, they're still unreconciled to this day. Then you come to Jacob and Esau. I mean, these guys are already fighting in the womb. And there they are, jostling against each other all the days of their life. Then you come to Joseph and his brothers. And here you see just jealousy and hatred. And this almost results in another murder. But this isn't just Genesis, because when we think about our world, 
This is the world in which we live. Husbands wound their wives. Children lash out against their parents. Parents hurt and abuse their children. Bosses mistreat their employees. Teachers hurt their students. Friends betray friends. And this list goes on and on and on. And we live in a world where revenge has become the norm. Where repaying evil for evil is par for the course. Yeah? It is. But see, now we come to a world changer. I mean, this is a world changing moment. Because Joseph, rather than taking revenge, he forgives. And Joseph is not only the first person in the Bible, but probably the first person in recorded history to forgive another person. So let's start with this. Because I think this forgiveness of Joseph is is not only just the theme of, of Genesis, I think it's the whole theme of the Bible. Because what Joseph's forgiveness does is it it points us to God. It points us to the heart of God. It, it points us to what really the whole story is all about. God forgives. And not only is he a forgiving God, but when you look at a fallen world, this is God's primary way of restoring and healing broken people, and his broken world. So let me start with this question. What is forgiveness? What does it look like? What does it entail? See, I think when we take into account everything that we read last week, When we look at Joseph, Joseph points us to God. Joseph is the perfect example of God's forgiveness of us. Because like Joseph, God's forgiveness always involved two things. Both truth and love. Love and truth. Forgiveness requires both of those things. Because when you look at Joseph, you see that Joseph never denies or makes light of the things that the brothers did to him. I mean, he never excuses the wrong that they did. He never says, all right, guys, um, I know you really didn't mean to do that. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. And see, I think so many people today, they think forgiveness is just that. It's just kind of looking at the crime that's been done and we just kind of sort of sweep that thing under the rug or we act as if it never happened or we make light of it. I mean, this is a lot easier, isn't it? It's a lot easier to deny it. It's a lot easier to make light of it. But see, forgiveness begins with facing the truth of what that person did. That's why in Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph actually says this to his brothers. You sold me. You sold me here in Egypt. 
See, Joseph's putting the truth on the table, not sweeping this, this, this reality under the rug and acting as if it never happened. And then you go to Genesis 50, verse 20, and he says this to his brothers, what you intended for evil. Hey guys, let's call this what it is. What you did was evil. The intent of your heart was evil. And see, last time we looked at how Joseph, when he first sees his brothers, how he pretty much puts them through, through two years of, of earthly hell. I don't know if you remember that whole Benjamin ordeal. He, he, he's, testing, he's testing them. And as we learned last time, he, he's not in this season taking revenge. He's not trying to pay them back for the evil that they did. But the reason he is doing this, it's not so that he can get them to say, I'm sorry, so that he now can forgive them. Because as we learned last time, Joseph has already forgiven them and the brothers already feel that they're sorry. Joseph isn't even doing all this for his own sake. He's doing this for the sake of the brothers. He's doing this for the sake of truth. He wants truth to surface. The truth of who these guys really are. Hocker nah. Who are you guys? And let's allow all the truth of who you are and what you've done surface. Why does he want this? Because he is going for more than just forgiveness. He is going for their transformation. And repentance and transformation can only happen if there's first repentance. And repentance can only happen if we're first willing to face the truth of who we are and what we've done. And here's the deal. If Joseph just sweeps this whole thing under the rug and says, hey, guys, let's, let, let's just let bygones be bygones and let's act as if this never happened, he undercuts their whole opportunity for transformation. So forgiveness must always involve truth. Forgiveness must always involve love, intense love. I mean, what is Joseph doing this whole this whole season. He's weeping. He's crying. Why? Because he loves his brothers. Those tears express this deep desire on his part to be reconciled with them. It's for them to experience the same redemption that he's experienced. And those tears express Joseph's vulnerability. Because love always involves vulnerability. So there you have it. Truth and love. Love and truth. There's a hard side and there's a soft side to forgiveness. There's both justice and compassion. There's both discipline and mercy. Both are involved for true forgiveness to take place. And see, this all points to how God forgives us. God doesn't forgive us by just sweeping our sin under the rug, because God is a God of truth. When he forgives us, he never looks at us and says, oh, that's no big deal. Let's just try harder next time. God deals with us in truth. 
God will always reveal the truth of who we are and what we've done. And sometimes it will take a pit and a dungeon for us to see who we are and the extent of what we've done. In fact, I can look at my own life. And I never would have said this at the time. But I can look at the pits and the dungeons of my life. And it's just so clear to me that, that, that God was loving me in those pits. God was loving me in the dungeon. Just like we even heard this morning uh, from our sister who's going to be doing YWAM. It, God, I promise you, she experienced the love of God, not just in the, in the prison, but through the prison. And see, this is, this is how, how God works. That's why Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says this, and this is a take both from Deuteronomy 8 and Hebrews 12. So, so three places in the Bible it says, God disciplines those he loves. And listen how this, this verse ends. As a father does the son in whom he delights. So God disciplines those he loves, but that isn't as just a judge or a boss, but he does it as a father in whom he delights. And I don't know how you think of God today. Do you see God as just kind of the boss upstairs? Do you see God as just kind of this just judge, and whenever you sin, he just kind of pounds his gavel and says, guilty? See, like Joseph, our God weeps. Only Christianity believes in a weeping God. And the way that God weeps is the same way Joseph weeps for his brothers. I mean, I was thinking about this this week, and God's blessed me with, with, with a mom and a dad who weep. I mean, my, my dad still has a difficult time praying for any one of us whenever we're going through a difficult time without right there in the prayer breaking down and weeping. He weeps. My mom weeps. And trust me, I got their wrath. <laughs> um, but I also got their tears. And see, now that I'm a dad, I understand the tears even more than I understand the wrath because I see how often now, and this applies more to Libby even than to me, but how much we weep for our kids. We weep for them. God weeps for you. God weeps for you in the same way a mother weeps for her flawed son. God weeps for you the same way a broken-hearted father waits on the porch for his long-lost son. He weeps. Because he's a God of both truth and love, of both love and truth. He isn't just this boss or this judge, but he's a father with a father's heart. And he loves us. And like Joseph, he desperately wants to be reconciled to us. Do you know this God? Do you know his truth? Do you know his tears? Because here's the deal. 
If we only had a God of truth but no love, we'd just be left with with some cold-hearted judge. But if we had a God who was just a God of love but no truth, you and I, we'd never change. Because in the end, truth without love is lifeless, and love without truth isn't even love. I mean, I was going through this this morning with Libby. She always helps me so much uh, as I prepare this. And she said, you know, Rod, as I hear that, let's just do a little time out here. We're terrible parents. And I said, Libby, no, we're not terrible parents. But she said, yes, we are in this sense. We're great at loving our kids. We're horrible in the truth part. All we do is provide palaces for our kids. We provide no pits. And then all of a sudden that kind of rang true in my heart. And it reminded me when I was a youth pastor before I had kids and dealing with with students, I, I used to always tell parents this. I said, parents, you know, you don't have the luxury to, to be a good parent today. In light of the times, you have to be great parents. Just like churches. Churches don't even have the luxury to be, be good churches. We, we, we have to be great churches. And what I mean by that is we don't have the luxury to just ballpark it on the love side, but hit a single on the truth side. Parents, churches, all of us, we need to ballpark it in both love and truth. And our God is a God of both love and truth. And this is how he forgives us. And this is how we are to forgive. And let me ask you, is this how you forgive? Or maybe I should even start before that. Do you even know what forgiveness is? When someone hurts you, when someone wrongs you, when someone does harm to you or violates you or intends evil against you, what do you do with that? How do you respond? I'll tell you how I deal with it. My sense of justice kicks in. I say, all right, you hurt me. Now you owe me. Pay up. You need to pay for that wrong that you've done for me, to me. See, I think this is why Jesus, when speaking of this stuff, uses the imagery of debt. Because the wrong does, done to us, it creates this emotional debt of pain that we all feel so deeply. And see, our sense of justice demands that someone must pay for that hurt. And this is why we hurt back. This is why we we repay evil with evil. This is why we wish them harm. This is why we slander them. Because it makes us feel that the debt that they caused is now being paid down. But the problem with this, even though this may feel good in that sense, in doing this, we are actually becoming the very evil that was done to us. Now it's poisoning us. Now we're conforming to its ugliness. 
And soon what happens is we become its slave. We become, to, we become a slave to our emotions of bitterness, of resentment and hatred and anger, self-pity. And it's not long before we become just as evil as the evil that was done to us. And this is how lives are ruined. This is how marriages are ruined. This is how families are ruined. This is how churches are ruined. This is how communities are ruined. And this is why so many people don't want to face the truth of the hurt because it gets so much easier to just sweep it under the rug, make light of it, or even go so far as to act as if it never happened. And see, this is why forgiveness must always involve truth because the depth of the wrong done against us must be faced. Sin must be called sin. Evil must be called evil. And it must be brought to light even if the perpetrator doesn't have the capacity to face it. And see, now with truth on the table, now genuine forgiveness can take place because now the love part of forgiveness can kick in. And the way that the love part kicks in is rather than saying to the offender, you must pay down the debt for the pain that you caused to me, love says that debt of pain caused by you, I'll pay it down. I'll absorb it. That's forgiveness. Do you forgive? Think about these simple clauses from Jesus. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do you do that? Because, see, every time I love my, my enemies, I'm absorbing the debt. Every time I bless those who curse me, I'm absorbing the debt. Every time I pray for those who mistreat me, I'm absorbing the debt. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, all genuine forgiveness entails deep suffering. Forgiveness is hard because when we forgive, we suffer. Because... In some ways, every time we forgive, in some way, we are bearing that person's sins. So when you and I forgive, we're making this choice. We're making the choice that instead of the offender suffering for what he or she has done and the debt that they've incurred as a result of that, we are choosing to suffer instead and we are choosing to pay down that debt. And I think this is why genuine forgiveness feels like a kind of death. Because when you and I genuinely forgive someone, we are absorbing that person's debt. We're taking the cost of that offense completely upon ourselves. Instead of taking it out on the other person. And from my own experience, this hurts. It hurts. But you know what if we do this? And I'm not saying in the moment. I'm saying over time, when we forgive, when we absorb the debt, when we take on the suffering that that hurt caused 
upon ourselves. It's the only way our hearts will ever be healed. And it's the only way you will ever be set free. That's the end. Healing and freedom. And isn't this how God forgives us? I mean, God sees all of our sin. He sees all of it. He sees the truth of our sin. And compared even to what my eyes can see of my sin, it's magnified in his eyes by a million. So God doesn't just kind of sweep our sin under the rug, make light of it. But instead what God does is he absorbs it. All of it. That's why there's a God on a cross who's praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he ends it by saying, it is finished. Tetelestai in Greek. Paid in full. And then Christ says, all right. Now forgive the way I forgave you. And I think Joseph gives us a little bit more of the how, because I, I need the how. When I understand the magnitude of forgiveness, that it's not just something I do with my words. It's not just trying to get rid of it and forget it, but it's dealing with it, and then it's absorbing the pain of it. When I understand it this way, I I need a little bit more of the how. The first thing that, that we need to have to forgive this way is, is spiritual poverty. Because look at what Joseph says in verse 19. Joseph said to them, this is after they come to him, basically thinking, all right, now that father's dead, Joseph's going to get back at us. He's going to repay evil with evil. I mean, these guys might even be thinking that he's going to kill us. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? See, what Joseph is saying here is, okay, guys, you might be looking at me as the ruler of Egypt, but the real reality is this. I'm just a sinner like you. And here's the deal. When you and I withhold forgiveness, when we let bitterness and resentment seep into our lives, when we nurse a grudge, when we take revenge on another person, we are forgetting that we are sinners too. Because what we're doing then is we are really taking the place of God. We're we're sitting in God's chair. We're assuming God's place. It's God's place to judge, not ours. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay evil. That's God's territory, not our territory. And see, when we nurse a grudge, stay resentful, repay evil for evil. What's underneath that is pride. Because pride at the end of the day, let me put it this way, it takes a lot for me to look at you and say, I know exactly what you deserve. And then for me to enact that. I don't know what you deserve. I don't know what my enemies deserve. 
I don't know what, what the people who have wronged me deserve. I don't know their whole life. I don't know what they've had to endure or why they are the way they are or what's behind what caused them to do. I don't know that. I'm not in the place of God. And see, when we repay evil for evil, we're not in a place of, of, of spiritual poverty. Because for us to actually do that, I think sometimes we have to think such thoughts as, I would never do what they did to me. I'm not capable of, of that. But see, what we need is the spiritual poverty. We need, we, we, we need the spiritual poverty of Judah in Genesis 38, where he could look at even one of his worst enemies and say, she she is more righteous than I. Or but for the grace of God in my life, there goes me. Are you too proud today to forgive? If you are, let me say this as, as gently as possible. If you're too proud to forgive, then you're too proud to receive God's forgiveness. It's that simple. Because an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. An, unforgiven, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. And he doesn't stop there. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we are too proud to forgive someone else, then we're too proud to receive his forgiveness. So Joseph teaches us not only that we need spiritual poverty, but also Joseph teaches that to forgive, we need spiritual wealth. I mean, look at Joseph when he says this to his brothers. He says, what you guys intended for evil, what you intended for evil, God intended that evil for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, we've studied Joseph, but just go back into his life. Think about all the evil that was intended upon him. From the pits to the prisons, the slander, the betrayal, the injustices. And yet, Joseph had enough spiritual wealth where he could look at all of that and more or less say, God still reigns and God is good and God in his reigning is going to use all of it for good in my life. I mean, it's Romans 8 verse 28. It's the belief that God is working all things. He's working every circumstance in your life for good. Do you know that? Because if you do, that's a ton of spiritual wealth. And that's the kind of spiritual wealth it takes to look at someone who's hurt you and wronged you, where you cannot just look at the particular, but you can look at the particular in light of the whole. And the particular being, you hurt me, but in light of the whole, God's going to use that hurt in my life for great good. 
That's why David, when his, when his own son Absalom is driving him out of his palace, creating this revolutionary war, civil war, taking over David's throne, David's leaving, and, 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 and some, some guy just thinks, all right, I'm going to take all my frustration out on David. He starts pelting him with stones, hitting him, cursing him. And uh, I think it's a, David's uh, general standing right next to him. He says, let me rip his head off. And David says, no. Maybe I need what this guy's throwing at me. Just that perspective. God's going to take everything, even getting pelted with stones, even being cursed, and use it for great good. And here's what Christians have, and only Christians have. We can look at the greatest event in the world, which at the time, when it was first seen by the disciples, when it was first experienced by, by Jesus' followers, they thought it was the darkest and most despairing thing that could ever happen. Jesus on a cross. But as despairing and bleak and dark and tragic as that was in the moment, God has used that great tragedy to offer the greatest good. And see, that's why we can look at all our little crosses in our life, all our little pits, all our little prisons in light of the great cross and know that God's going to turn this, this little cross, into great good. That's spiritual wealth. Joseph had it. See, it's because of this, his spiritual poverty and his spiritual wealth, that Joseph could forgive him. And look at verse 21, and I'll conclude with this. So then... Says Joseph, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them. And he spoke kindly to them. What Joseph is doing is he's, he's even going above and beyond forgiving them. But he's repaying their evil with great good. Two questions. First, have you really been forgiven? Have you really received Christ's forgiveness? Have you personally had, ex- had an experience at the foot of the cross of Jesus forgiving your sin, all of it? Are you secure today in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Because I look at these, these brothers, and it's 17 years after Joseph has already wept with them and forgiven them and, and told them to draw near to him. They're still trying to earn his favor. They're still trying to manipulate him. They're still feeling all insecure. And we do the same thing with God. God, have you really forgiven me? And see, like Joseph, Christ has to reassure us Don't be afraid. I have provided. It's finished. It is paid in full. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, there is no more condemnation. None. And see, until your heart knows this, and until you've experienced it, you will never have the capacity to forgive. Second question, 
And I'll end with this. Who is God bringing to your mind right now? Who has he been bringing to your mind during this whole sermon? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a pastor. Do you see him absorbing your debt? All of it? All of it? And forgive. Forgive. As he forgave you. In doing so, not only will we be made heal and whole, but we will become agents of healing and, and bringing that, that wholeness to the world. Let's pray. God, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, not only that um, we are new creations in Christ, that the old has gone and new has come, but he ends that whole thought with saying that, that in Christ you are reconciling the whole world to yourself. And God, if there's anyone here today who hasn't experienced that reconciliation, open the eyes of their heart to see who you are. That you're a God who absorbs our debt, all of it. And God, you say then you give us this ministry of reconciliation. God, may we bring this ministry into our world for your glory. In Jesus' name.